Hello, everybody. This is John Hagedorn, and welcome to 1001 Stories for the Road, also known as Caffeine for the Curious, and your home for good old-fashioned entertainment. If your hobby or profession is diving on wrecks, you've probably heard Andrea calling. Today's story offers a simple piece of advice. If Andrea calls, don't answer. In Homer's Odyssey, the hero Odysseus was sorely tempted by the sweet song of the sirens, two lovely sea creatures who were known to lure sailors close in toward the rocky shore where their ships would crash. Knowing that to succumb to their charms would mean a certain death, Odysseus ordered his men to plug his and their ears with beeswax and tie him to the mast until their ship was out of hearing range of the deadly call. Fifty miles south of Nantucket and 180 feet down, the wreck of the 700-foot-long Italian cruise ship Andrea Doria still sounds her siren call, attracting some of the best men and women divers in the world to her deadly resting place at the bottom of the ocean. Eighteen of those who answered the call have lost their lives, according to the most recent count offered by the research vessel Wahoo. Some say she's cursed, and the men who dived on her and did not return alive to the surface would no doubt be in agreement with that if they were alive today. Others say she's a very dangerous wreck to dive on and have given her the nickname the Mount Everest of the Deep. She was the largest and most beautiful ocean liner in her time, her decks dotted with three outdoor swimming pools. She carried millions of dollars worth of art for her passengers to enjoy, two radar screens, and in her previous 100 transatlantic crossings had catered to nobility, movie stars, and wealthy magnates from three ports in the Mediterranean to New York City. On the night of July 25, 1956, in a heavy fog off Nantucket, despite her radar capabilities, she was struck by the Swedish ship Stockholm, a collision which tore away most of her bow, killing some passengers sleeping in steerage and causing her to list badly to one side. Thanks to the efforts of rescue ships, 1,660 of her occupants, passengers and crew, were saved. But 46 people died. Divers on the Andrea Doria just after it sank in 1956 told of a sleeping beauty of a ship about two football fields long, if you can imagine that, rolled over on its starboard side, covering the fatal gash torn in it by its collision with another ocean liner. The ship seems suspended in time. The blue hull stands out smartly from the white sandy bottom. Curtains wave in the windows. The bridge empty but intact, as if captain and mates had just left for dinner. Divers today will tell you she's a dangerous, rusted old hulk, and that only the most experienced divers in the world should risk it. The skills and equipment required to execute and survive a dive on the Andrea Doria, such as the use of mixed gases and stage decompression, place her in the realm of only a small percentage of divers. But knowing this, and knowing that having a piece of unbroken china coming from the Andrea Doria that you pulled out yourself and brought to the top, drives some people to gladly want to risk their lives to say they're the best in the world. Admit it, you're probably picturing having one of those plates on your office wall, side by side with a picture of your smiling mug after you remove your dive mask 
and hold up your Andrea Doria plate that you risked it all for and pose for the picture. Below, in her watery grave, the Andrea Doria awaits in cold, murky, current-laden surroundings, surrounded by a film of monofilament fishing line and netting, which get hung on tanks and diving gear and close in on trapped divers like a spider snares its moth. The hull is now fractured and collapsed. The upper decks have slowly slid off the wreck to the seabed below. A large debris field now flows from the hull of the liner. Once popular access holes for divers, like the gimbal's hole, have disappeared as the hulk shifts, and in the constant process of this shifting, she makes noises that send shivers up and down every diver's spine. How much remains to be found? The ship's compass was removed by Evelyn Bartram Dudas, who retrieved it back in 67, diving with her husband John. Peter Gimble hauled out the bank safe in 81, full of banknotes, but no jewels, as the passengers were expecting to arrive in New York within hours, and had retrieved all their valuables. The ship's stern bell was brought up by a team of divers led by Bill Nagel. New Jersey diver Carl Bayer found the bridge bill lying on the bottom at 241 feet. The forward bell is still waiting for you. You have to ask yourself, are you feeling lucky? 1998 was a bad year for Doria divers. Dan Crowell, the captain of the Seeker, lost two divers early that summer. Crowell takes them out on their China hunt. The Seeker is considered to be the most extreme boat with the most extreme crew. Guys who wrote the books on diving. Men like New York attorney Bill Cleary did it for the pure thrill of it and had done it successfully for years. But that day, in 1998, diving off the Seeker, Cleary recognized the nagging headache down there for what it was, a carbon dioxide buildup. A bad feeling had been with him all that morning, a feeling that something ominous was going to happen. And it did. He was swimming in a corridor when he became entangled in cables. Try to imagine the feeling you get 240 feet down in cold, murky water, inside a huge ship, tangled in cables that you can't free yourself from, and knowing you have only 20 minutes of air remaining. But Cleary was lucky. A fellow diver, Vincent Napoliello, came to his aid, freeing him from the cables and guiding him out of the wreck. Later that day, Cleary dove again, but followed his gut and didn't enter the ship. His pal, Napoliello, however, dove later, at 3.40 that afternoon, with dive partner Dennis Murphy. Napoliello was in full gear, five air tanks, dive computers, lights, and tools that more than doubled his body weight. There was a slight underwater current running that day, as it does on most days, and for a technical diver wearing 200 pounds of equipment, it was strenuous, but not a major obstacle. Napoliello pressed a button on the front of his suit and air hissed out of the inflatable black wings that surrounded his backpack tanks, helping him to start his descent down the anchor line to the Andrea Doria, waiting below. Buoyancy was half the thrill of diving, like walking in space, and in clearer water, the sight of a ship that big, from your vantage point, floating in watery space, must have been surreal. But as you're descending, there is no room for error, one mistake can send you plummeting to the bottom of the wreck. Just a few years before, John Ormsby had misjudged a drop and plunged 70 feet 
from the top to the bottom of the first-class foyer. He then panicked and swam into the electrical cables, becoming so entangled that it took two days before the divers could cut his lifeless body out, and even then his body was lifted to the surface, still wrapped in the cables. Napoleello and Murphy were at the bottom in just a few minutes, where Cleary saw them as he was finishing his dive. They met at the anchor line. Cleary later noted that Napoleello thought something was wrong with Cleary because he grabbed him and wouldn't let go until Cleary gave him the OK sign. Then Napoleello and Murphy disappeared into the wreck through the same entrance that first-class passengers used to board on that last fateful voyage. Murphy later recalled that as they dropped in, their lights shone on a screen of long, thick electrical cables hanging from what used to be a ceiling, like a net. They kicked their way down a corridor until they reached the area that held the china closets. Twelve minutes passed as Napoleello raked away silt, then signaled Murphy to take over. Suddenly, Napoleello yanked the air regulator out of Murphy's mouth, forcing Murphy to switch to a bailout regulator which was attached to a backup bottom gas tank. He then grabbed Napoleello and turned him so that he could face him. This is where it gets strange. If you grab the regulator out of someone's mouth, it could only mean yours isn't working. So you can see why Murphy was shocked to see that Napoleello still had his own regulator in his mouth and was holding Murphy's in his hand. Murphy signaled, out of air? Napoleello signaled back, no. Then Murphy knowing something was wrong, signaled that they needed to exit now. No doubt Murphy was suspecting that nitrogen narcosis was taking place, robbing Napoleello's brain of oxygen and turning him quickly insane. Napoleelli signaled back yes and took the lead, swimming over and past Murphy. It took them only a minute to swim out of the ship to the anchor line. But instead of grabbing the line for the trip up, Napoleello swam past it and disappeared into the murk. Cleary was slowly making his way up the line. Dives this deep didn't last long, and as Cleary slowly worked his way up, stopping at each checkpoint, he was wondering why he wasn't feeling any vibration in the line from the other two below, who should be on the line by now. He waited. Still nothing. Then, against his better judgment, he started dropping down again, hoping to catch a glimpse of them. Instead of finding them, he met two other divers coming up. They had left after Murphy and the Poliello. Now Cleary was really worried. He was feeling the cold and had now been in the water for an hour. He was congested and didn't have enough gas left to continue. Suddenly, a diver from the boat above was coming down and peered into Cleary's face mask to check his identity. The mate had no hood on, which told the story to Cleary. Someone had surfaced without decompression. All kinds of things were going through Cleary's mind as he waited at the last point coming up. If you rush it, the best you'll get is intense pain. The worst, irreparable brain damage, possibly death. When he finally made the surface, he yelled to the crew that Murphy and Napoleello were missing. Glancing over at a nearby boat called the Sea Inn, Cleary could see a team of men gathered around a table and giving someone CPR. He immediately swam over to the sea inn. He was lifted out of the water. Murphy had made it. Napoleello was dead. Another victim of the Andrea Doria. The autopsy cited drowning 
which is almost always the cause of any diving death. But this time, a severely blocked artery was probably responsible for the heart attack that claimed him. His tanks were checked, and they were not determined as being the cause. But all that still doesn't account for Napoliello's strange actions, beginning with his yanking the regulator from Murphy's mouth. There are 17 other deaths, the latest coming in 2017, with Stephen Slater, aged 46, from Gateshead, England, who was pulled from the water unconscious above the wreck of the Andrea Doria. Yet, she calls for divers every day. One piece of good advice, no matter how good a diver you are, when Andrea Doria calls, don't answer. It's likely to be the last call you ever hear. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories for the Road. If you enjoy this show, we hope you take time to say thanks by subscribing to 1001 so you can catch all our episodes, and not just here, but at 1001 Heroes, at 1001 Classic Short Stories as well. The link is in the show notes, along with links to our free 1001 Stories Network app. I started 1001 in December of 2014 and have worked hard to develop and improve the narration and production through the months and years to the point where we have a pretty solid show that gets excellent reviews and is enjoyed by many. We produce three shows a week, launching them every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and providing our listeners with great stories from every genre. We call it a journey, and it really is. You learn a lot here. And through the stories, you pick up a good knowledge of history and all kinds of people and events that shape our lives. There's no PC here. I tell it like it is. We have hundreds of reviews at iTunes, the big daddy of podcasting, and we love to get new ones. I think 1001 Heroes is overdue. So how about lighting this up over there, 1001 Heroes? If you're not sure how to do it, just Google how to leave a review on a podcast at iTunes. We have all kinds of expenses here with what I do. We pay our host company to store and release our new shows. I have studio fees for interviews, and I spend easily 60 hours a week doing this. Out of love for it, yes, but love has its limits, and we need support. That's why we switched in February and began asking for subscribers, who were also premium members. That $2.99 a month helps me pay the bills. Well, that's it for today. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. And we'll be back next Sunday night.